All right. We'll just wait about another minute and then we'll get started here. You are in Woods 2. You're still in the festival grounds. It's not raining. We're in the shade. There are people sleeping around you in hammocks. That's not a bad thing. My name's Kevin Rue, and so this is Woods 2. We're going to be talking about Unity today. So we'll wait just one more minute, okay? Let's quiet our hearts and our minds, our thoughts. I know a lot's been going on. Maybe everything's been uh, kind of going wrong for you today in camping. Everything's been going right for you today in concerts. I don't know. Um, but I'm here to open God's word. I absolutely and passionately love God's word. It's the foremost thing on my heart and my thoughts. Sometimes I handle it well, and sometimes I absolutely do not. But that's why we have brothers and sisters. That's why I have the family of God, and that's why we gather together to encourage each other, to challenge each other, and to love each other because of Christ, who he is, and how we see him through God's word. So let us pray right now and focus our minds and our hearts, regardless of what's been going on earlier today or even tonight, the concerts, and throughout the week, and let's focus on him right now, okay? Father, we thank you for being so good to us. We thank you that you came, you died, and you established your church, and you use us as vessels, broken as we are, Lord, to bring forth your glory to a world that is in need of you. And so, Lord, as we put one foot in front of the other and we do this, and we falter at times, God, help us to realize that your spirit in us and in our brothers and our sisters who are on our right and on our left are there, and that we are here to honor you in all that we do for your glory, for your purposes, for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. I work with the creation festivals, and as much as you think that's why I'm probably on the stage, you're probably right at some level. But I have the opportunity to work with a lot of the speakers that come and that we book and that we have um, I have the opportunity to work with all the volunteers, with all the supervisors who come from many different backgrounds, many different churches, many different thoughts theologically, and many different places even spiritually, some who are saved, some who are not. And I have the opportunity to look into their eyes or read their emails or see their texts and see the correspondence that happens and how they see God, how they view God, and how God uses them. And they, they like to let me know through emails. They like to let me know through phone calls. And so I have this view, I guess, of many people who go here from stages to campgrounds. And something that's always on my heart is this topic of unity. And I remember as a, I guess, fresh out of college, as a 22-year-old, I signed up with an organization to go across the United States and a few different countries and to proclaim the gospel, to, I guess, show people who God is in some way, shape, or form. And I did it through music. I have a music degree, and so I wanted to sing, and I wanted to tell people about Christ using the gifts that I had. And I found myself in this 15-passenger van with six other people and with five other denominations in this vehicle with me. We are from different parts of the countries and of the country, and so culturally we, we were we were definitely different. We had West Coast, we had Midwest, we had the South, we had the Northeast, 
We had Assemblies of God. We had Baptist Congregational. We had Lutherans. We had Wesleyans in there. This is all in one van. And we certainly had different thoughts on how God meets people and what he does with their lives. The process and how that works and how we should carry it out and what it should look like, what it shouldn't look like. And if you've ever had a conversation with me, you know I'm, I'm, I'm vocal. I have an opinion. And sometimes it's grounded. And at 22, I can tell you most times it was not. Most times in my spiritual life growing up, it was something that I basically regurgitated, meaning that my pastor or a mentor in my life would say something about the Bible or about God. I would take that in. I didn't necessarily look it up, and then I just kind of spewed that out whenever I needed to or when I could chalk one up to Kevin knowing something in the Bible or who God was. Sometimes I used Greek words. I didn't know what they mean. Um, sometimes I opened the Bible and, and, and kind of threw verses out of context, and sometimes I um, wouldn't even try to do that, and I would just utter basic, uh, like broad-stroking uh, comments that hopefully were right, and hopefully they could go back in the Bible and find them. And so I find myself in many an argument in those years of my life, in 22, 23, looking and trying to convey the gospel, yet having such a, a disproportionate amount of disunity in the van as I would go out and be very frustrated and I didn't know how to function, and I was very, very, I, I guess, angry. I wanted to convince people of what the right way to think was about God, who he was, but I didn't even know who he was as the, as, as the Bible would reveal it. And so I began to get convicted and convicted year after year after year about this topic and this thought of unity. And more recently, as I was reading and studying in Scripture, I came to John 17, and this is over probably the last few years of my life, and I'm one who stands there saying, I've not yet made it. This is something I will pursue till I'm dead, and I see Christ face to face. But when I read the words of Christ in John 17, something just truly convicted me, and it's been something where um, in my life, I think on a daily basis, it's something I look to pursue as this was a prayer that Christ had prior going to Gethsemane, prior to the prayer in the garden. In the end of John's gospel, this is something where it takes a whole chapter and we get to see and look into Christ's heart for the church to be when he goes up to be with the Father. And as he sends the Spirit down in Acts chapter 2 that he would be in us. These, these are some of his desires that the Father would empower the church. Not only the apostles, but those who would come after them. And that would be you and me. And so as we observe the events in this world, and we look in our, in, even in our own country, and we see a whole lot of friction that's happening, and we see social issues being brought to the table, and we see, we see the church and their response, and maybe we see a lot of contradiction. Maybe we see, wow, this church and these people in this block are acting this way towards this issue, and this church and the, you know, right across the street are completely 180 on the issue and acting in a completely different way. And you look at it, and maybe you're outside the church right now, and you're not even attending because you were so frustrated right now with how the capital C church is responding to issues that you've just pulled yourself out and said, you know what, maybe that's not for me, and I'll hibernate in my relationship with God, and I think that will be fine, and I'll have this cocoon of Christianity, and I won't be spreading the gospel at all because I don't even know how to define Christ because everybody is saying something that's completely different. And you find yourself off topic, and the gospel is no longer central to your walk, let alone the church's walk that you might be in. But now it's something that's on the sidelines, and at times they might want to bring in it only to support maybe their cause. And we find ourselves seeing that Christ has now been shoved into a closet, and what his desires were, and how God revealed himself through scripture as a whole, 
is no longer at the forefront of our minds, of our hearts, and it's certainly not on our tongues and in our actions as we engage a very lost world. And so what I want to talk about in this time in John 17 is unity as Christ prayed for unity. Unity as Christ prayed for unity. A lot of people want to say, hey, well, what did Jesus say? What does Jesus do? They avoid a lot of the, uh, the epistles that Paul wrote or Peter wrote. But the same God that inspired the apostles and those who aren't to write the gospels is the same God who came down as man in Christ Jesus and who prayed this prayer. And so I'm going to take us through not only John 17, but a few other passages. So if you have your Bibles or your phone with your Bible in it as an app, please turn to or flip to or press to John 17. Starting in verse 20. He's just getting done for um, praying for the apostles, and this is where he goes on to pray for us. He says this, I do not ask for these only, meaning the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, say so that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's saying what he wants, and he's saying for the purposes, this is why I want it, and this is why. Okay, this is what I want and why I want it. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be, become perfectly one, so that, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, verse 25, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So it's clear that Jesus wants his church to be one for the purposes that far exceeds us getting along. And I guess I want to take off the table the definition of unity being, in our minds, that, hey, we just all need to get along and things will be fine. I want to say that that's wrong. It's a wrong thought. It's a wrong understanding. Because the foundation of our unity is the gospel. And if we get the gospel wrong then there is no possible way that we could be unified because the purpose is that we are on this earth is to live and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not my testimony that counts. It is not my thoughts on the view. It is not me interjecting my opinion because I think I'm persuasive in my argumentation. It is the gospel that goes forth and that unifies hearts because that is what saves people. That's what redeems people. I don't want you leaving here saying, oh wow, Kevin had a great testimony of what he did. I want you leaving here understanding what the gospel is because Christ is in you. I will never be in you. I won't be there between you and God at the throne. I can't vouch for your identity in Christ. Only Christ in you can do that. And so what I want to make sure that we understand is that we begin to talk about terms of unity. We need to understand it is defined, it's bedrock foundation is the gospel. You get the gospel wrong, you will never arrive at unity, and you will find yourself frustrated, arguing time and again about certain issues. And so I want our hearts to come down to and understand the gospel for the purposes of unity. 
So what is the primary purpose for unity in the body of Christ? It's to proclaim the gospel. We'll go back to verse 21 and 23. Those so that's. It says, Father, I, it says, Father um, I and you, you and me, that they may also be in us. So the purposes of that, being all together unified in Christ, is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's sitting here and he's establishing, he's saying, you know what? If you guys get together and understand why I came... If you guys understand why I gave my life, if you guys understand the paradigm shift that you had as Jews and as Gentiles, if you understand that I came for those and to lay down my life so that your life can then line up with mine, if you understand that and you gather around that message, just that alone will be proclaiming Christ to the masses. We don't have to make one step at all into the world. I'm not saying you don't. I'm saying that if we are unified, that in and of itself is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, of why he came. And so you wonder why it is so difficult for some people to raise a finger against the bride of Christ, the church. It's because they care so much about unity that they, want, they don't want to distort the gospel message. Because if we distort the gospel message, again, we're providing the world, not Christ, but us. Okay, if we distort the gospel message, we're now providing the world the answer, us, and not Christ. We can't do that. In verse 23, he goes and says the, almost the exact same thing again, maybe emphasizing that. He says, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved them. So now he goes further, says the gospel then says, I, if, you, if you basically get together on this gospel thing, it's going to show them not only me, but that you love me and that I love them. So us being unified shows the world that what? We love them. That the gospel is a loving message. It's a message that gives them life. It's a message that says, you know what, the chains that you had, it talks about chains being broken, with love, the love of the gospel is what does that. And so in our lives, if we don't get the gospel right, we're never going to get unity right. You will continue to see friction in churches. You will never walk across the street and worship with that church. Your denominational walls that are built up will totally nullify and eclipse what the gospel can do in the hearts and lives of those around us. And so I want to do just a real quick hey, this is what the gospel is. I'd be a fool to think that everybody sitting down here understands the gospel and or lives out the gospel. I say that because you were me. 20 years ago, I sat here on the creation grounds. I proclaimed a God that was not bearing fruit in my own life. I sat there and I sang the songs. I knew every song, every lyric. I could tell you when the breaks were. I could tell you when I could say amen. I knew when to say amen too. Like, if there was a charismatic speaker up there, I knew when to say amen. I knew when to feel to feel. You know what I'm saying? So when they said, hey, get it going, I'm like, yeah. I if I had a handkerchief, I would have waved it. Okay? So I knew when to say the right things. I was patterned in my life to do the right things. But the gospel had not transformed my heart in understanding what the message actually was. And so, therefore, when all of a sudden someone approached me, and they would say, hey, Kevin, this is what I'm seeing in your life. The first thing I would do is kind of respond in a way that would be like, what are you talking about? Who are you to judge me? I wasn't standing on the gospel at all. So it would be one of these pushback moments. And so I wanted to kind of talk about the gospel just very quickly here. And please work with me in uh, 
the, the fact that you probably know this, but one of my favorite passages is Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And Paul draws an amazing picture of what the gospel actually does in our lives. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, say all of us. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, all of us. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead, the second time, in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And one of the primary factors of disunity is we think that somebody else doesn't deserve Christ. We look at somebody and we say, you know what, your status either economically, socially, racially, I'm not going to go to you because you don't deserve Christ. Though I have this message, you don't deserve it. You're not in a place where God can actually reach you. And we start to separate ourselves, we start to build the walls. And we start to say, hey, your foundation now, well, the gospel can't reach there. And we don't realize that all of us were dead in sin. All of us were dead. Not one of us said, you know what? I think Jesus is a great way. Let me go there right now and make up this way with Jesus and see that he is the way. No, what the Bible says is that we were dead in our sin. We were not even paying attention to Christ. And in our deadness, God reached down with his spirit and he breathed life into us, our dead bodies. He breathes his spirit into us. Then we came alive and we're aware of who he was and what he has done. But all of us before that were destined for wrath, the Bible says. And so that is our foundation of understanding unity and the gospel. And the gospel doesn't just change us from making these bad decisions to making really good decisions. I think a lot of us look at that, especially as children. We grow up and as parents, and I have two kids that I love like crazy that I would do anything for. But in my life, as I watch them grow up and as I'm teaching them the words of Scripture, I want them to go from making good decisions and the right decisions to living good decisions and acting out of a heart that is transformed. And in the church, a lot of times, and certainly with my life for decades, what never happened in my life was this thing called repentance. Repentance is a very difficult thing because you have to come to the, the grips with the fact that it's not my way anymore. The direction in which I was traveling now, I have to turn. And when the spirit comes in our lives and there's this conviction, when conviction happens, repentance says, I'm going to turn and I'm going to be propelled in a different direction. That propelling comes from the spirit that is in us that seals us for his purposes. And the church will tell people, hey, you're in sin, you're in sin, you're in sin, you're in sin. Or they'll tell people, you know what, keep your sin, come to Jesus. But the problem is, 
in coming to Christ, there's an automatic change in direction of who we're going to please. We go from death, seeking our own desires, to life and seeking Christ's desires. And we don't repent, then we find ourselves bringing our own desires onto the table and suggesting that's a part of the gospel and a part of what Christ wants. It's very difficult for me, and it was very difficult for me for many, many years, to try to break Break free, I guess, my own desires from the gospel. I don't know if you have those problems, but sometimes I have to sit down and say, what have I offered to somebody? Have I offered Christ? Have I offered my own way of salvation? My own way of experiencing Christ? So in our repentance, our selfish nature begins to be transformed, and our desire to please Christ takes precedence. It propels us in a different direction. And I would say, if you're here right now, and you've said a prayer, or you've made a confession, or at some point in your life, um, maybe sooner or later, that you said, Christ, come into me, and you haven't had these feelings. And people often associate salvation with feelings or experiences. Events can be very catalytic in your life. They could be awesome, but sometimes you find yourself alone, and you're like, I don't have the feeling that God is with me. The reality is when God rebirths you and breathes life into you, it's done. And sometimes you have highs and sometimes you have lows, but God continue propels you forward because he's calling you to be his own one day in heaven. If our response to the gospel does not include repentance, then you aren't responding to the gospel. Please understand that the gospel absolutely is joy. There's freedom. It's one of the most amazing things that God would choose to look at you and look at me and breathe life into you. But understand this, that if there's no repentance that is with that joy, you are not responding to the gospel. The gospel's convicting. The gospel's convicting. It changes our direction. So how is unity accomplished? The gospel. Unity is accomplished by standing on the bedrock of the gospel. We look at the apostles and we look in their lives. And as they tried to walk this out, remember the cultural, um, I guess, prejudice, the cultural lines, the barriers were so deep and so long. And when Christ came as king and not like anybody else wanted him to be king, certainly not the Jews, what happened was there was this, wait, now I'm supposed to associate with them on a level playing field? No, it ain't going to happen. And so even the apostles found themselves as they're walking out this message, trying to convey the gospel, finding themselves tripping on what they want the gospel to look at. And so we go to Galatians 2, 11 through 14. It says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. He separated himself. I'll stop right here. I don't know if you've ever found yourself when all of a sudden the gospel is going to be kind of a convicting thing and you've got to make a stand with the gospel and amongst your friends or your family. And you find yourself doing that. You find yourself kind of pulling back. And you're separating yourself. And so as people view your life, they view you as, wow, okay, so the gospel doesn't really speak into this situation. And so we shy back because we don't feel that the gospel is relevant in a conversation. And we don't lift our voices up. We don't speak. And so we found the apostle standing here just like that. He says, Peter drew back. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Okay, so there's influence there. So as he pulls back, what? Other people are looking at Peter as a leader. And they're what? Pulling back. Okay, so they're reflecting what? Not the gospel. So that even Barnabas a mighty leader in the church. You don't hear too much about, but he was a mighty leader in the church. Even he was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He basically said, hey, the Jews wanted to add something more to the Gentiles. They wanted to have a notch up and say, you know what? You Gentiles can come to Christ, but on these terms. And so they took the gospel from Christ's terms that would be for all, that were all condemned, and that he breathes life into all. And he said, let me take them on my terms, and let me say that's the gospel and this. And they started to add some Jewish customs, some things that they um, had been practicing And so what Paul is saying is saying, what are you doing? This gospel that's supposed to free us, you're starting to put a shackle back onto them. And you're saying, they are not worthy of the actual gospel, the true rooted gospel, which is what Christ has done for you. And so he starts to pull back and he's saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. I don't know about you, but when I see the issues around this world, I struggle. I personally struggle What's sitting there saying, this person blew up this person, but now I'm supposed to love them and offer the gospel. My response often is, you blew up him, I'm going to blow up you. And you're like, yay, go America. Uh, Oh. Oh. I got news for you, church. America isn't the gospel. The gospel's the gospel. This is not a political statement, please understand. No country is the gospel. Christ came for a bride. Those are people. Those are living stones, as the Bible says. We're fashioned together. They're living stones. Christ came to proclaim, through those living stones, us, the church, the gospel. And if we start to add things to that, even country, we're not proclaiming the gospel. We might have a good structure in America of how our country was founded. There might be some really good things. But folks, we're not in a theocracy anymore. Christ now lives in each one of us. And if we don't line up with the gospel as proclaimed as the word of God says, then we're not offering the gospel. And so I understand that it's a challenge. I understand that it's difficult. I understand that Christ's message is offensive and convicting. But it also brings joy and freedom. And so why would we offer something else to somebody else? And so Christ's prayer for our unity In the gospel, it has to be rooted in him and what he offered and who he is. And when we start adding things to it, it becomes a burden and it becomes not the gospel. So let's keep our hearts and our minds focused on what that is. We have to understand that the gospel levels the playing field. Paul says at the end of Galatians 3, 27 and 28, he says, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Say, all are one. I've had the opportunity to go to a lot of different countries in my life uh, to bring the message of Christ to a lot of different countries. And I often go into those countries and I see either they're just completely wrecked or war-torn. Or I go and I've been to Africa and I see that there's um, billboards with preachers up there with watches and all kinds of things. Or I see that there's a work that's being done and there's a lot of maybe wells being um, dug 
or there's a lot of material and resources and food being dug, or food being provided, excuse me. But oftentimes, when I see these eyes, and they're looking at you, and you're delivering a message, what they're seeing is what America has exported as the gospel. And it's not the gospel. I'm not saying this is everywhere. Please understand that. This is my experience when I, when I traveled a lot more extensively than I do now. But my heart starts to break and think in my own life. What it convicted me of an understanding is saying, what am I saying to these people? What am I offering them? Am I offering a cool chance to be with an American? Am I offering a cool testimony of where I come from in New Jersey? Or am I offering them the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if I cannot preach it in a hut in Africa or Guatemala, wherever it might be, and I can only preach it in a church in America, then I can tell you this very confidently that I'm not preaching the gospel. And that broke me. Oh, that just broke me. And I know I would talk with my wife years later, and I'd say, you know what? Some of those trips that I did and where my heart was, I had a good trip. I had a great experience. I saw some really neat cultures. But when it came to the gospel, I failed. I didn't deliver the gospel. I left there with great memories. I got a photo collection. They don't. And I'm not saying this to say, you know, Kevin, you messed up your life. I'm not going to sit here in condemnation. I'm not. I thank God that I have conviction now that I have a message that I want to give, and it's not mine. (laughs) It's Christ's. And so what I challenge us with all today, in unity, as we pursue it, we need to be founded in the gospel. We need to be founded in the gospel and make sure it is the gospel. Now, how is unity sustained? The gospel. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. When it came to verse 3, I remember one year I was reading this. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let me ask you a question that I want you just to contemplate just for a second here. Do you pursue the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ outside of your church? Do you pursue unity with your brothers and sisters outside of your own church and do you do it in peace? I read that and I'm like, I do not at all. What I typically try to do is say, this is how I do church and I actually build myself up. I build up the way in which I convey the gospel or, way, or my brothers and sisters in my own small group and I love my group and I don't necessarily want to go out of that. And something that truly convicted me is that I am not pursuing unity in the spirit with my brothers and sisters. If you go on Facebook today or social media of any kind and you read all the kind of one-liners that people have based on social issues that are going on, whatever it is, I ask you to look at that and say, how many people here in this conversation, on this thread, are pursuing unity through the bond of peace because of the gospel? 
Paul had the amazing ability to have to go to the Gentiles and now say, hey, you know what? This promise that came through the Jews, I, I, I now offer to you. Jesus chose him specifically for that. And he fought hard and long. But something about the gospel, leveling the playing field, something about that fact, people don't like it. People like to step on other people. People like to say, I've got one up. I know more than. I've done more than. Our church does it better than. Our worship is this. Our worship is that. And so I look at the Creation Festival, something I've been part of for many, 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 many years. And what I love about the Creation Festival is it brings together denominations through states and cultures Camping next to people you would never, ever probably see in church next to you in a pew. And the great thing about that is there are no walls that say, this is a church I go to. I'm not seeing you walk into first church of whatever. And so my first thought isn't about you. Oh, they believe that about Arminianism or Calvinism. My first thought is that, oh, wow, there's another person I can worship next to. And we don't think anything beyond that. I assume you know the gospel. I assume that Christ is in you. And I don't think too much further about that until I have this thing called a conversation. How many of those are happening today in the world? If you don't have a conversation, you don't know where that person is. And if you don't know where that person is, how are you going to convey the gospel to them in a way that is loving, in a way that's pursuing unity? And so as you look at your neighbors, as you look at campsites, as you begin talks, as you come off probably an emotional high from seeing your favorite band, getting their autograph, or just enjoying the time with friends and family on this vacation. As you go back to your communities and you look in your schools and even in your churches, I encourage you to pursue unity. I encourage you to be rooted in the gospel. I encourage you to offer only the gospel. And to act as if the person next to you is a brother or a sister. I'm not saying there are not going to be issues where you say, hey, I see your life is a little bit off. Let's talk about that. But can you actually talk about it? Can you actually see them as a brother and sister? There are various analogies in Scripture where Paul brings up that we're a body. And he says, how can the hand say to the eye, I don't need you? When you bring something other than the gospel, that is what you're saying. I don't need you. And not only that like Peter's friends who drew back, like Barnabas, in that moment, the gospel isn't for you. I, I bet you, if I asked anybody here, would you say the gospel is for everybody? You would say, yes, the gospel is for everybody. But what I challenge you with is as you walk that out in your life, are you offering that to everybody? Or like our culture right now, are you setting up walls? Are you dividing people left and right, suggesting that there are sheeps and goats that you have to tend to? Not our job. Our job is to offer the gospel to people. If he saved me, I can, if he saved me, he can save the next person. His blood is sufficient. His death was sufficient for that next person. And so as you walk that out in your life, as you walk that out in your church, I would encourage you, actually, just even now, to contemplate, am I rooted in Christ? Am I rooted in the gospel? Do I truly believe, do I truly believe that the gospel levels the playing field? Or do I need to make obstacles for somebody to jump to that is to suggest that, oh, now you've made it? When we rent vehicles coming here uh, to creation, 
we go through an extensive list. And what we have to do at the enterprise counter, uh, counter is he goes, he offers you the contracts. He said, these are the vehicles. Would you like insurance? And you go through this process of initialing like 50 different things. It is so fun. It's awesome. So, so you go through all of that, and it's always, it's always just, it, it's kind of scary feeling, to be honest with you. Did I initial the right thing? Did I accept the wrong thing? Did I get the insurance that's right? And you go through this whole process, and you're like, oh, did I do it right? I hope if I get in an accident or if somebody hits me, somebody else pays for it. That's basically all I care about. I don't want to hurt anybody, but I also want to not pay people. So what happens is you start to initial, it's a contract between us and the car rental company. When it comes to the gospel, the reality is that Christ made the contract and signed the contract. We don't initial it. It is not up to us to say, hey, you know what, Jesus, you got it right right here. Let me, let me sign off on that. And I think a lot of times when we look at somebody else, we want to sign off on their life. I think you're at a place now where the gospel can apply to you. Let me sign off. Enough fruit has been in their lives. You are good to go. Go see your next leader. We're not on that contract, folks. That is a contract that is between Jesus Christ and you or that next person. And so when we offer the gospel, please don't try to initial some other contract. We're not offering them the gospel. It might be your contract. They might be not living up to your standards. But Christ died and paid it for all. Please don't try to initial their life. Your initials will never be on their heart. It will be Christ who will do that. And that's hard to swallow because I still go in that route too. I still want to let people know that. I still want to let people say, oh, wow, you're, you're at a good place now. No, we're, we're all getting there, if you know what I mean. We all got more to go. We're all going to be there until we see Christ face to face. This process called sanctification. But the justification already happened on the cross. And Christ did it and he paid for it. So don't take him another route. So I encourage you all as you come here, it's probably one of the most amazing things as I see us gather, as I see us worship. I'm like, wow, these people are all in different places, but they were all called out of darkness into light. They all were in one direction, but now they're pursuing Christ. Nobody has made it, but Christ is sufficient. That work that he started, he will finish. As Matthew 6 talks about, he who began that work will what? Is faithful and he will complete the work. It wasn't he who began that work will pass it off to somebody else to help this guy finish the work. No, he who began the work, Christ, by his spirit will complete that work. He's faithful to do so. And that is a freeing thing. When we get to a place where we understand that the gospel has leveled the playing ground, then we all know we're all at the same place, needing Christ not only to save us, but to sustain us. And that we are now that vehicle that God has used for whatever reason as a conduit of his grace to be given to the next person, to be proclaimed to the next person. We have different gifts. We have different abilities. We are a body. Some are the head, the eye. Don't get caught too much on that. It gets weird. But God, Christ, is the head. And that is who we're exalting. We're unified for the purposes of exalting Christ. And when we are unified, that in and of itself proclaims the gospel to those who are lost. They're like, wow, what have they got that I don't? That is when we're a fragrance to those around us that is pleasing. And when we're not pleasing, 
check ourselves. Check ourselves. Where's my heart? What am I offering? What fragrance do I have on me? What fragrance do I have on me? If you go back to the analogy with the body, you can think a lot of things right there. What fragrance do I have on me? We want to offer Christ. We want to be Christ to those around us. Only Christ can be Christ, but his spirit through us and our part can offer Christ. So as we look to be unified, as we look to pursue unity, we need to know that it needs to be rooted in the gospel. We need to have the gospel in the forefront. We need not to be on our lips, and we want the testimony of those leaving here, leaving creation, leaving our conversations, to be that of Christ. So many times when I left conversations, I never brought up Christ because I wanted them to hear about what Christ had done in me, and so I was the subject of our conversation. And the awesome thing is that God saved you and you have a testimony, but let them leave with Christ on their lips, with the gospel on their minds. Let that be the convicting element. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being good. And in our culture, good is such a trite word. It's so small, it doesn't even begin to describe death to life. Oh, you're good for doing, no, you're amazing for doing that. You're incredible for doing that. It is joyous to know that you breathe into our lifeless bodies and you said, I want him, I want her. And so, Father, thank you. May that bring joy, but may that bring the conviction and the repentance that follows that when we pursue you and when we pursue unity, may we offer you to the next person, Father. May our hearts be united in the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, rooted in the gospel, so that that fruit comes from our lives will be by your spirit and that the fragrance people smell, what they understand and what they leave with is you. May you be on our tongues, on our mind, in our hearts as we walk out this message to a world that is lost and that is dying. For you are our saving grace and our sustaining one. We love you, Jesus. We commit this time for you and to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy the festival, y'all.